Welcome to This is What Democracy Sounds Like. I'm Kevin Prang. This program is a presentation of Metropolitan Congregations United. MCU is a community organization that brings together religious congregations, community groups, and individuals to work for a common purpose, and that's to create a better life for all residents of the St. Louis region. We work at the intersection of race, economy, political power, gender, and the structures of oppression at work within us individually, within our organization, within the community. We are working towards building people's control of the government, building community control of the economy, expanding the public sphere, and creating structural racial equity. Today, my guest is Missouri State Senator Brian Williams, who represents the 14th District. And uh, today we're gonna be talking about a closer look of Senate Bill 53. It passed at the end of the recent legislative session. This bill is what's known as an omnibus bill that touches on law enforcement, the court system, and the incarceration system. Um, just the summaries of everything in this bill, I printed out, and it's around 12 pages of just the summaries. So we won't be covering everything in the bill, but we'll focus on some issues that have been important to MCU, specifically law enforcement reform, expungement, and raising uh, the age when it comes to juvenile justice. We will also get a quick update on the status of funding of Medicaid in Missouri. So Senator Williams, thank you for taking the time out and joining us today. Kevin, thank you for having me. And, um, you know, it's always great uh, to talk about important issues, especially with uh, organizations that are very active and, and supportive towards um, progressive uh, values and issues that we focus on at the state level and that's uh, uh, MCU. You know, um, criminal justice reform and, and public safety were, were always among my type priorities uh, serving in the state Senate. And, uh, you know, I appreciate the opportunity to be able to, to update you and your listeners on our efforts uh, in the state's capital. You know, this year we passed uh, historic legislation that would address a range of issues, um, including police reform, criminal justice reform, uh, expungement reform, and um, last but not least, raising the age for incarceration of minors. Uh, one of the most important things that we can do to make our streets safer is improve the relationship between police officers and the communities that they serve. Uh, that's why I sponsored legislation with important progressive police reforms, uh, specifically Senate Bill 60, which was um, which was um, combined in a, a bill um, that we passed through the Senate, which would prohibit law enforcement from using a respiratory chokehold unless deadly force is authorized. It would increase the penalty to a Class E felony for officers and correctional staff who engage in sexual conduct with a person in their custody. Um, that's really important when you think about um, what happened in Minneapolis with George Floyd or what we see here locally in St. Louis, where uh, there's been um, instances of correctional facility officers as well as law enforcement members that have uh, uh, cohorted uh, inmates as well as folks that they're detaining into um, various compromising uh, situations due to the fact that they, they maintain a level of authority. So under this bill, if they were to do anything, uh, cohorted inmate or someone that was being detained, uh, they would receive a Class C felony. It would also prevent officers who have been discharged from one department for wrongdoing from simply moving to another department. Why is this important? Um, in Senate District 14, where I represent, I have 35 municipalities that range from Ferguson to uh, University City 
um, north through Hazelwood and Florissant, they all have police departments. And what we've seen uh, historically is that there's been, um, as stated in the Ferguson Commission report, where uh, police departments were using um, everyday citizens as, as a personal ATM by giving them traffic citations. Um, and we've also seen where officers have been engaged and involved in levels of misconduct, and they simply would just leave that police department and go to another. So we're preventing officers right now by giving immunity to uh, police chiefs and those administrations to be able to disclose the information if someone were to vacate the department before the conclusion of an investigation and uh, not be fearful of retaliation or even potentially being sued by uh, the police officers association. So, you know, that gives good police officers cover to really uh, expose the bad apples that clearly have tainted the profession. Uh, it would also require law enforcement agencies to collect and report local data each year on use of force incidents. So we created a, a, a use of force database, which had never been uh, created here in the state of Missouri. Um, we all know that these are long due over, um, overdue changes, but we can improve police community relations and restore the trust that we all know is the very foundation of public safety. And I, and I wanna be clear about something. You know, this isn't an us versus them situation. These are important reforms that are embraced by uh, groups and advocates uh, throughout the country, the NAACP, the National Association of Social Workers, Empower Missouri, uh, the Missouri Association of Prosecuting Attorneys, and many more. Um, you know, George Floyd should be alive today. Uh, Breonna Taylor should be alive. Michael Brown should be alive. But we can bring them back. But we can focus on important reforms to ensure that uh, we save Black lives in the state of Missouri. We ban chokeholds with this bill. We'll stop sexual misconduct with this bill. We'll stop departments from hiring bad apples with this bill. And we're making progress. Um, my bill, uh, Senate Bill 60, passed both chambers with bipartisan support and is awaiting the governor's signature to become law. So I'm proud of the work that we've accomplished. And I look forward to seeing this bill signed into law so we can save Black lives. Uh, that's addressing the police reform element of it, Kevin. So I'll stop there before we go into expungement and some other parts of the bill. Okay, great. So let's, let's, I just want to clarify a couple of things. Um, what, what you introduced into the legislature was Senate Bill 60, and it, it included many of these items. But then that ends up getting rolled into Senate Bill 53. Can you explain just the mechanics of how that works, just so we eliminate a little bit of confusion over the numbers? Absolutely. So it's 53 and 60 is what the title will say. And um, basically, a year ago, the governor called a special session and he wanted to focus on violent crime in the city of St. Louis. I asked the governor to expand the call and take up police reform. Um, the governor did not expand the call. I started talking with uh, members of the Senate where I served and um, got a commitment to take up the issue during the regular session. So we spent a year traveling all over the state, talking to members of law enforcement, talking to activists, talking to advocates um, throughout the entire state of Missouri um, and, and built a coalition uh, around the importance of police accountability and reform. Uh, we filed Senate Bill 60 in January earlier this year. And uh, I knew that the um, there were members that wanted to take up um, 
police residency. Now, let's be clear about something. Last special session, um, we passed a bill out of the Senate that um, that uh, allowed St. Louis City to uh, remove its or lift its residency. I was one of three senators to vote against that, um, primarily because that was on the ballot in that that November to determine for voters to determine whether or not they wanted to lift the residency uh, in St. Louis County, where I live and represent. Uh, our police department doesn't have a residency requirement. Um, but again, you know, I, I believe in local control. So when they brought up legislation to uh, lift the residency in Kansas City, I said, well, if you guys are going to move forward with lifting the residency this time, then we need to get something for it and we need to move forward with police reform. So what we did was we, we combined the bills into what's called a, a Senate committee substitute. And what that basically means, Kevin, is that if the police residency bill moved forward, then police reform would as well. If police reform failed, then the uh, police residency bill would fail also. So we just made it to where uh, basically if um, anyone was going to try to kill the police reform bill, uh, any law enforcement priority was going to die as well. Okay. Okay. And that's part of the, the uh, 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 compromise that everybody talks about when they talk about uh, politics being the art of the compromise, I guess, too, mm-hmm. is, is making sure that we look at uh, uh, mutually beneficial bills that, that are going to benefit uh, both, both sides of, yeah. of, of this. Um, and, let's, and then there's another piece that we need to talk about, which I think is important. Uh, this is the first time since the death of Michael Brown that we've seen uh, any uh, police reforms um, cross the finish line and be passed into law. Um, I'll be the only Democrat that have passed a, a bill that would address not only criminal justice reform, but really um, any any issue uh, of substance pertaining to uh, protecting black lives in the state of Missouri. Um, that bill will have my name on it and the governor will be signing that bill in St. Louis uh, later this summer. You know, I think it's also important to understand that um, we made it very clear that uh, not only do I not support any anti-protester language, um, I would not support uh, any any pro-law enforcement language that would provide a, a felony or, or any type of uh, running over protesters language. And we make sure that that was not uh, involved in our bill. The only thing that that was pro-law enforcement in the bill was they lifted the residency just within 30 miles of the police department in Kansas City. And um, in the city of St. Louis, Sheriff Vernon Betts, black um, police sheriff, I'm sorry, black sheriff of the city of St. Louis, uh, we gave raises to them because they were the lowest paid sheriff department in the state. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, let's. I want to get into a couple of uh, details on, on a couple of things. Now, you had mentioned the uh, the the restrictions are, are eliminating chokeholds and uh, the felony for uh, sexual misconduct while on the job. Those are those seem to be uh, the easiest to understand. So I'll start with those first. What has changed um, for uh, the issue of using chokeholds and and sexual misconduct? Where were things before? Where will it be after this is signed? Yeah, a couple good examples, Kevin, would be. Now we have it classified as a ban in the state of Missouri. So now if somebody uses a certain level of force like a chokehold, that would allow prosecutors to be able to categorize that as an assault. Um, Prior police departments did 
uh, state that they don't train their police officers to use the chokehold. But now knowing that there's a statute and law that bans it, not only do I think that provides more accountability, but I think it also lets law enforcement officers know if they were to utilize this type of um, uh, use of force, then there will be a, a consequence. And now prosecutors can identify that as being an, an illegal maneuver to use uh, when detaining someone. So first, that's what that would do. And that's why that's extremely important. Second, um, we've seen what happened downtown at the uh, Justice Center. Uh, we've, we've heard about the um, disarray at the workhouse, which has led to um, movements of, of wanting to close the workhouse, address the conditions of the Justice Center. Um, now, when a correctional facility officer or a police officer that may be looking to detain someone, cohorts an inmate or somebody who's in their custody into doing something inappropriate, they now will be charged with a class C felony. Prior to that, they would have to do an investigation and almost determine what that what that crime was and, and determine if they was going to charge that officer. So now that we have it uh, in law, and, and this goes in this goes not only for just correctional facility officers, we've heard instances where there's been police officers who have pulled over women or or, or detained women and and um, made sexual advances. Um, if you go on a date with me, I won't give you a DUI or, or things of that nature. So we want to prevent officers from utilizing or cohorsing folks by their utilizing their authority to uh, influence them to do things that are inappropriate. It sounds like both of these are, are codifying things and, and, and solidifying them in the law of Missouri. Um, mm -hmm. with, a, with the chokehold, it was departments may have that as a best policy, but it wasn't against the law. And Absolutely. with the sexual misconduct, it was, this is sort of the red line in the sand, do not cross this. Absolutely. And, and you want to create an environment where um, correctional facility officers and police officers aren't using their, their authority to cohort folks into doing inappropriate things. Right. So let's move on a little bit to the hiring and movement of officers. There, there's a, a new requirement that says that police officers need to um, be licensed and fingerprinted, I believe. And then also... Mm -hmm. Uh, that when they leave a department, there has to be documentation of why. Can you go into a little bit more detail on those? Yeah, absolutely. So what is called, Kevin, is the RAP back program. That's R-A-P-B-A-C-K uh, program. And what that would do is it would provide law enforcement agencies with a window where they would do a, a federal and local background check during the hiring process to make sure that there was no situation or, or real time uh, situation where someone may have uh, committed a crime or, or been arrested while having a good time in Vegas um, and still be able to uh, um, actively uh, work within the department or be considered for uh, employment. And if I remember correctly, that that's a process that even teachers need to go through, correct? They need the exact to, same, you, exact same background check and process that we make teachers go through. Law enforcement has to go through it now as well. Okay, great. So what what is this about um, when an officer leaves a department? What what what's going to happen now with with that? What kind of documentation? Yeah, I'll give you a great example. So basically, all it what it does is is that it it provides immunity. So for example, um, Chief Armstrong in Ferguson, 
if someone was to leave the Ferguson Police Department and go to the neighboring municipality or police department, um, they can provide them with information or documentation on um, that person's um, uh, employment record, as well as uh, information pertaining to an investigation, especially if that person was to vacate the department before that investigation was over. Okay, great. So the sharing of information is what we're getting at. Yeah, here. And, it, and it gives them and it gives them immunity to be able to do that. Clearly, with factual information, um, because what was happening before is that the police officers association would intervene with legal counsel, and they would pretty much deter uh, police officers or departments from providing that information because they were concerned that there may be a legal consequence. Okay, great. And then this leads into the the use of force database, and this is about data collection. It's I assume this is not going to stop anything right here and now, but this is how we can see patterns over time. Then, correct? Absolutely. I mean, you know what happens is you know whenever we're looking into different issues, we always spend a ton of money doing disparity reports and and things of that nature. Now we have a a process in place that would allow us to be able to keep um, real data. That, that provides uh, where uh, some of the high use of force areas are, what, what departments they are, what are the incidents, who did those incidents involve, and, and, and really let us see patterns of, of where folks are, are, are primarily being targeted by law enforcement when it comes to use of force. And then that allows us to be able to uh, work towards policies and even address uh, some of these high use of force areas where we've seen uh, historically there have been um, high levels of, of force being used in predominantly black communities by law enforcement. So if we want to make that uh, change, then we need to have things in place to be able to measure and be able to see where these things are happening and then also be able to address it from real uh, factual data that we require uh, police departments and agencies to provide. Okay, great. And one more thing that... Um you had mentioned this when you had talked to Expo earlier uh, this spring, and actually winter, I think it was, uh, was uh, this issue of what a police officer does when they pull someone over who has an outstanding warrant for traffic violations. And the, it, in the document, in, in, in the Senate bill, it says offensive of failure to execute a warrant. And when I read the, the text, it, it's a little bit confusing. So you, can you explain mm-hmm. what this is and what the benefit is of having this rule? It, it addresses uh, execution of, of warrant arrest warrants. So we want to build the trust in the community. So if someone's driving and they have a municipal violation for, you know, driving with expired license plates, something that's a nonviolent offense, it would basically... Um, not require officers who are currently required to arrest you to to arrest you. So now um, officers can use discretion when it comes to someone with a warrant. So if someone's driving with their baby in the backseat and they're trying to get to the daycare, trying to get to work or the store, or whatever the situation may be, and they have a municipal violation, an officer is not required by law to arrest them. They can give them another court date or say, hey, you have this warrant you know, please get this fixed and and taken care of so you don't get arrested. And it builds the trust, but then it also uh, doesn't uh, inconvenience someone or provide them a situation where they get arrested for for typically being unable to pay uh, traffic violations or or handle 
uh, legal situations. It gives them more time. Okay. And I think that gets to that using the public as the ATM for the community issue of, of, of just one fine right after another on top of another that sort of replicates itself. And then yeah. also it gives, it gives the officer some leeway too, because if I'm reading this correct, uh, before this change, the officer themselves would be in trouble if they did not issue, if they did not arrest the person, correct? Absolutely. And, you know, and there have been situations where police officers, you know, they pull somebody over and they don't want to they don't want to arrest them. They don't want to have to take them to jail. They don't want their car to get towed. They don't want to have to go through all these different things. That's going to really become a, a far more uphill of a battle for somebody who's already struggling to make ends meet. And then in return, that allows us to work toward building the trust to where folks don't always feel that police officers are trying to uh, take them to jail and ultimately um, create more um, more issues for them, but they're actually working with them to help them get out of the situation that they're in. So let's turn to a couple of the issues that have been big issues for MCU and Expo. Um, uh, let's start with uh, uh, ex- uh, raising the age. So raise the age passed in Missouri a couple of years ago, uh, but there was not a funding mechanism for it. Uh, it is my understanding that that has been taken care of in this bill also. That's the first be clear, last special session, the same special session I asked the governor to extend the call to take up police reform, they also wanted to pass legislation that would allow the courts to charge a child as young as the age of 12 as an adult. What we did was this bill would not only raise the age and require a juvenile under the age of 18 who has been certified to stand trial as an adult remain in juvenile detention instead of adult jail, pending the finalization of the judgment. And then it requires that all previously certified pretrial juveniles under the age of 18 shall be transferred from adult jail to secure juvenile detention facilities. Okay, great. And, and, we, and I serve on the Senate Appropriations Committee, and I, I, I made the request for that uh, to be funded as well. Okay, so we're finally fulfilling the promise that was made a couple of years ago. And you're, yep. thank you for the reminder on, on that horrible suggestion last summer. I had almost forgotten about it. Yeah, and that was the driving force behind wanting to get that done, is that, you know, we can't send, you know, 12-year-olds to prison with adults. So that was, you know, up there with, with some of the most draconian policies that I've ever seen. Uh, But also, um, Kevin, we want to know that not only did we fund that, but we also uh, I worked hard and made sure that we fund um, public defenders to where we now have uh, 53 additional public defenders to be able to address a uh, extensive caseload that's backlogged. So now we would be uh, funding to ensure that there's more public defenders to represent folks uh, who are going through that process and cannot afford an attorney. And another provision in this bill uh, addressing uh, juvenile uh, rights was the juvenile waiver of right to counsel. Um, again, this is one I, I kind of got a little confused on as I was reading it. Can you fill me in on on what's happening in that provision? It ensures that uh, everyone has a right to, to counsel and it doesn't allow that counsel to be waived, meaning that it's ensuring that there's adequate representation for uh, juveniles to ensure that they do have an attorney. And that's why it was extremely important to, to provide uh, additional funding for the public defenders to be able to have not only more representation, but address that backlog 
Because what happens is that you have a lot of folks that waive counsel just because they either can't afford an attorney or there's no public defenders available and they just really want to just move on with the case. And, and it's really unfortunate because, you know, and I don't want to make this uh, a, a, an issue of, uh, you know, prosecutors and, and, you know, all that. But I will say that we've seen many instances where uh, folks have been asked to waive their counsel, admit to guilt, and, and they may not even be guilty because they would rather just move on with the process than to continue um, potentially risking, in their mind, getting more time. So someone can say, hey, if you admit to this, you'll get five years. If you take it to trial, then you may get 40. And, you know, somebody that just say, well, I, I don't have the money to get a lawyer. I, I'm tired of going through this process. I would rather just admit to guilt. I've been here three years, so I could just do two more years. And I'm going to have this, this, this record, but I'll have an opportunity to go home. Right, right. And, and especially when it comes to children, that's even heavier pressure because they, yeah, don't I mean, know the, they don't know the law. And in many times, they don't even have a parent um, accompanying them in that interview process. Yeah. And, and think about it. If they've been there three years and they say, hey, you get five years, we, we give you time served. You only have two more years and you get to go home. And sometimes they've been able to go home, but not thinking once they go home and they have this record for a crime that they may or may not have committed then they still have this, you know, this 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 lingering thing over their head for the rest of their lives. And, and I think that takes us into uh, one of MCU's priorities, which is freeing innocent people from prison. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, it, the last issue that I think is important is uh, the issue of innocent people being locked up in jail. You know, you may have seen in the news that's been uh, recently the cases of Lamar Johnson here in St. Louis and uh, Kevin Strickland in Kansas City. Uh, Lamar Johnson had been in prison for more than 25 years for a crime that even the local prosecutor now believes he did not commit. Uh, Kevin Strickland has been in prison for more than 40 years for a crime that two other people have since admitted to committing. You'll think that if the prosecutor wants to review a case and free an innocent man, that would be a way to do it, right? But um, earlier this year, the Missouri Supreme Court Uh, said that there's no Missouri law that allows a prosecutor to reopen an old case on the grounds of a wrongful prosecution. Um, The Supreme Court uh, went on to say that the legislature needs to pass a new law to give prosecutors and judges the power to review and reverse old convictions. Now, you know, it's shameful that Missouri uh, existing laws are denying innocent men and women justice. So my bill would also begin to right this wrong. Uh, And and specifically what it would do, Kevin, is it would allow prosecutors or circuit attorneys to file a motion to vacate convictions if they believe the convicted person is innocent. The local circuit uh, can then hear the motion and the judge would have no authority to vacate the conviction. So under current law, a prosecutor and the judge can both agree that the person is innocent, but it's nothing that they can do. Um, so, you know, I've received a letter from Lamar Johnson that he wrote me from prison thanking me for uh, getting this bill across the finish line because this gives him new hope to ultimately be able to come home to his family, as well as Kevin Strickland, but also the unnamed people who are now sitting in prison right now for crimes that they uh, may not have committed uh, have an opportunity to, to potentially be free uh, in this state. I think it's also uh, important to address Um, expungement. And expungement is another piece that MCU is focused on. Um, Clean slate. Now, I filed a bill, Senate Bill 61, 
which focused on expungement, uh, we were very fortunate to be able to um, have that language added into Senate Bill 60 and 53, where we were able to get that across the finish line as well. Uh, that was equally another um, important uh, priority for me. But clearly, you know, that that was overshadowed by a lot of things that we were doing in regards to police reform. Um, so we made significant progress on the issue of expungement. Uh, we can keep our community safe and stronger by also making sure that people who have served their time can find a good job and a good wage and re-enter back into society as model citizens. So what my bill would do is it would make expunging nonviolent records easier. It'll lower the earliest time to request an expungement from seven years to three years for a felony and from three years down to one year for a misdemeanor. Okay, great. Thank you for clarifying that because I saw the years in the bill and I wasn't sure if that was a window of opportunity, but what you're saying is this means that uh, someone who has that on their record um, can apply for that sooner than they did before. Yeah, as soon as they are, as soon as they are off um, probation or, or supervised release, um, they three years from the time that they're off probation, they can um, apply to have their record expunged uh, for a felony and then one year for a misdemeanor. And that was so important to us, Kevin, because seven years is a very long time to be unemployed. Seven years is a very long time to have a conviction on your record, um, just lingering over your head as you try to be a model citizen. And we've seen historically, uh, when it comes to addressing recidivism, we need to be putting um, as many of our, our citizens in a position to be successful and not uh, fall back into the, the world of crime. Um, but then also it does something else. You know, um, having uh, something on your record not only prevents you from getting a quality job, but it also prevents you from being able to live places. You can't rent an apartment. It's very difficult to become a homeowner uh, as a convicted felon. So it also allows us to be able to address those issues and, again, uh, put uh, folks who may have uh, made a mistake, as we all do, uh, on the path to become model citizens. Okay, great. That That's wonderful news. And for all of these, I think the other thing to say, too, is that this is not a finish line. This is this is a step in improvements in, mm -hmm. in a big system. So there's much more work to do, isn't there? Well, no, there's a lot more work to do. I've served in the state Senate now for uh, two and a half years. I did not hold office prior to coming to the Missouri Senate. And uh, to, to set a goal and, and set priorities as we did and get them across the finish line in a supermajority uh, legislature, um, if I was to go and tell that to someone else, they would they would think I was making it up. Uh, but these are things that we've been able to accomplish, uh, first with a very strong team, but most importantly with advocates like MCU and others that have been uh, doing the work on the ground and really uh, making sure that these issues come to the forefront. And now they're uh, going to be on the governor's desk now and can be signed into law any day now. Okay, great. So let's quickly, as we uh, kind of close things out here, let's turn to Medicaid. Um, it's been a contentious uh, issue this week. The first thing I need to let people know is that we are recording this on uh, Monday, June 28th. And when it comes to the issue of the federal reimbursement allowance, otherwise known as FRA, that is still in process. Um, so let, let us know what's been happening. We've, we're a week into a special session. What's been going on? Where do we stand? Yeah, absolutely. So we spent a week in special session. And uh, I mean, it was a very uh, exhausting week. You know, um, 
emotional week for a lot of us because you know we had a we had a a a um legislature that wanted to pretty much ban uh birth control and uh almost uh argue that uh birth control is abortifacient and we all know that uh birth control takes uh preventative steps and basically what they wanted to do was add a provision to the FRA for those that are not familiar with it it's a provider tax that allows uh, hospitals and, and, and healthcare providers to draw down matching funds up to a sum of roughly $4 billion. Um, this has been something that the state has done for the past 30 years, past um, the FRA. And this particular year, um, Republicans wanted to add a provision that would basically say that any uh, medical provider, in particular Planned Parenthood, who provided a contraceptive uh, would not be eligible to receive funding. I think it's um, not only completely wrong, but I think it's by far one of the most draconian steps that you can ever take when it comes to not only access to quality healthcare, but women's rights when it comes to um, access to healthcare. So I was strongly opposed to it. Um, several hours of debate, several days of, of back and forth uh, where they were working to defund Planned Parenthood um, I was a part of a very strong uh, but mighty uh, bipartisan caucus that considered that consisted of all the Democrats, uh, a lot of women in the Senate, uh, where we were able to um, convince the sponsor to drop the list of birth control. We stood up to extremists who were risking four billion dollars in health care funding and we won. So now um, we're able to pass a clean FRA with no birth control ban and no provider ban. And it's now going to the state house. And uh, we're hoping that they um, they they uphold the uh, language that we sent there and ultimately pass a clean FRA bill and, and it goes to the governor next week. Okay, great. And that is for basic Medicaid. So let's move on to Medicaid expansion, which was another issue for us over this past year. Last August, the voters in Missouri with 52% uh, approving said, yes, we want to expand Medicaid to match the uh, Affordable Care Act. Uh, to include uh, 275,000 more uh, Missourians in coverage. The funding was not approved by uh, the legislature. Um, and then recently this past week, we had a, a judge say that um, it, it did not have to go into effect be, because the legislature wasn't funding it. So where do we stand on that? And, and what, if anything, can can happen? And what can, what can we do to support that? that? That case will go into an appeal process. Um, you know, let's 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 go back to what this is about. You know, um, last August, voters overwhelmingly approved expanding Medicaid. And we have uh, two duties as elected officials. And that is one, uphold our oath to the Constitution. And then second, um, respect the will of the people. And the people wanted to expand Medicaid. Now, not only was I proud to uh, support expanding Medicaid and vote to fully fund the Medicaid uh program, but I had colleagues who did not want to uphold that oath. They violated the Constitution. They violated the will of the people by voting against uh, fully funding it. Now we have to put it in the hands of a judge when that should have been something that we handled through the legislature. And it was simple by upholding the Constitution and fully funding it. Um, I still have hope that we will be able to get this fully funded. Um, I'm still am encouraging everyone to enroll in the Medicaid program on July 1. Uh, and and um, I hope that the courts make the right decision. 
uh, but we'll continue to fight it uh, and we'll continue to to advocate for the expansion of Medicaid and fully funding it. That brings me to my last question. Uh, you had said you have hope that we can still fund it. What what gives you hope and what keeps your spirits up? Because a, a lot of times it seems like an uphill slog uh, for progressive values in the state house in Missouri. So what motivates you? You know, we have to remain optimistic about these things. We had some some really big wins this uh, year, you know, whether it was around police reform or expungement or um, addressing um, issues when it comes to our, our juveniles and, and public defenders. So, you know, I'm still optimistic that we'll get it done, uh, but, you know, we still have to watch that process. And, and again, uh, we have one job and, and that is to uphold the, our oath to the constitution and, and serve and, and promote policies that, that serve the interests of the people. Okay, great. And I think that's going to wrap up our conversation. I know you have a lot more to to get to today. So I want to thank you for your time today, Senator Brian Williams, representative of the 14th Senatorial District in Missouri. So thank you for your time. Yeah, Kevin, I want to thank you again for having me here to discuss these issues. And, you know, and I think it's important for listeners to know that uh, sometimes our country and our community seem deeply divided, you know, especially after a major election, right? But um, I, I firmly believe there's more that unites us than divide us. So um, as a state senator, I'm proud to represent you and everyone in this state because we know we know that public safety, police reform, uh, helping former offenders rebuild their lives should not be partisan positions and they really should be common goals that we all share. Okay, great. And to learn more about MCU, go to the Metropolitan Congregations United website at mcustlewis.org. Also be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for news and events. And also, Senator Brian Williams, I follow you on Twitter. You've actually been a joy to watch this last week as things got done in the Senate. So thank you for that. I'm Kevin Prang, and you've been listening to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. Tune in again next time, and thank you for listening.